I can already tell this is going to be a better day than last week because if you didn't know, the air conditioning wouldn't work uh, as it should last week. And two things happened. One, I'm not used to this, but people started falling asleep while I was speaking. <laughs> and I'm only kidding about not being used to that. Every preacher accepts that. But the other thing is, before I knew that the air conditioning wasn't working, I thought I was coming down with that virus. And uh, so I, I had a lot of reckoning to do, and I was prepared to give a lot of apologies for hugging people. So we are in a study that you have been doing for some time about core beliefs of the Christian faith. And today we're talking about the scriptures. And uh, so important uh, are all of the beliefs that we have, and, and this one is right there with all the others. But I want to talk to you about uh, the fact that we receive a lot of good wisdom and knowledge from many people. In fact, as I look back in my life, I'm blessed by uh, people who have poured into me to tell me what I did not know. My parents, teachers, so many teachers were a part of that process. Coaches, I think of uh, ministers and friends. People who gave to me riches in the form of information and experience uh, that I did not have yet, but they did. And it was truth that so many of them were telling me. And some of their wisdom I was seeking, some of it I wasn't. They gave it to me regardless. Uh, some of their wisdom they spoke, but oftentimes it came through in their lives, the way they lived out what they knew. I uh, often think of Francis of Assisi who said, preach the word or preach the gospel always and when necessary, use words. And words are always necessary, but words can never replace the life that can be observed. Some of the people gave me information at a time when it was meaningful and useful and to be honest, as I think back and as I recall, as I read things people wrote, it trickles still into my life today. Among people who have greatly added to my, uh, my life are people that I never met even, historical people, uh, even sports figures. I remember uh, meeting Stan Musial one, uh, one afternoon and had my son with me and he picked up my son and, and gave him some good advice. He said, he said, son, always keep your eye on the ball, even if the ball isn't a baseball. And uh, how, how valuable is that to that young man? Or another man named Buck O'Neill. Buck played with the, uh, the old Kansas City Monarchs in the Negro League. And he, uh, in his Hall of Fame message, he said something very profound. He said, I've, uh, I've seen great days in Buck O'Neill's life. I've seen him hit the home run and hit a triple and, and hit for the cycle and steal bases. But the greatest day in Buck O'Neill's life was the day that he came home to Christ as a sinner saved by grace. And those people, their lives have greatly impacted mine, even though I never met them. Authors, speakers, people who spoke what was needed and wisdom is many things, but at its core, it's truth that is known. Truth that we know. And this morning, we're going to talk about the scriptures as they relate to truth. 
but I would call it God's truth as we talk about the Bible, but the truth is that all truth is God's truth. It's not just that this is the only part of God's truth, but anything that is true is true because God has commissioned it or revealed it. And in particular, in our day, it's one thing that people talk about my truth and your truth, and we've become uh, so pluralistic that we accept the fact that we have different truths in our lives, and, and that is not the case at all. Uh, your truth may be different than mine because of what you've experienced, but it's true for both of us if it's true at all. And so the greatest influence in my life as it relates to truth has been this book, the scriptures. The Bible simply tells the truth for all people at all times. And many of you have been in church long enough to know that, uh, that there are a lot of uh, lessons that have been taught, Sunday school lessons, VBS, church camp lessons about unique things about the Bible, that the word Bible means a holy book or that it means uh, literally scroll. And that's from the Egyptian process of, of compiling both the outer part and the collection of words that are written. We remember being taught that the Bible was divided into two sections or testaments or covenants, or uh, sometimes we hear of them as compacts, and that is true also. And that the Christian Bible is divided up into 66 books, and there's 39 in the Old Covenant, 27 in the New. It might surprise you to know that it hasn't been that long ago that the Bible didn't have chapters and verses in it. And uh, that makes sense because quite often you will hear people in the New Testament quote authors, not give locations of where scriptures are, are uh, to be found. Uh, these books in the, book of the, in the Bible that we have are further divided into books of law, into uh, books of history, poetry, and the prophets. And in the New Testament, biography books or gospels, we call them a history book. There are epistles or letters, a book of prophecy. I didn't really fully ever comprehend this until we went to Israel that the Old Testament Jewish Bible looks different than ours. And uh, in fact, it's, uh, it's different. After the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the next section begins to reveal the differences. There's a difference in the number of books. There are no first and second books as we have them divided. And it's a difference in the order. And Chronicles is the last book in the, uh, the Jewish Old Testament, Old Covenant. And uh, it's helpful to know some of those things. You might even remember from church camp, and we'll test you on this today, uh, what is the longest chapter in the Bible? Anyone remember? Don't memorize this one if you're given a choice to memorize for credit at camp. What is it? Psalm 119. What's the shortest? Psalm 117. I'll help you out. What's interesting is in between the two would be Psalm 18, the exact center of the Bible, uh, chapter-wise, Psalm 18, and the exact center of the Bible by verse, Psalm 18, verse 8. I never knew that until I was reading that a few years ago. The faith chapter of the Bible is Hebrews what? 
11. The uh, love chapter of the Bible is what? 1 Corinthians. Guys, you better get this right. Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 is where we often uh, identify that as. And the creation chapters, Genesis 1 and 2. All of these pieces of information about the Bible are helpful, but they're only helpful so much as what is in the Bible is important. If what is in the Bible is not truth, then all that information is just trivia, and maybe not even meaningful trivia. So we're going to talk a little bit about the significance of the Bible, the why, uh, not just the what. And there are a lot of different ways we could approach a, a topic of the scriptures today. We could do it uh, uh, by apologetics, trying to uh, make the argument that the Bible is true, and, and that's certainly valuable. Uh, there are a lot of uh, other ways to look at it as a historically accurate book, and that is, uh, that is also valuable. But I want to talk to you a little bit about the why this morning that the scriptures are important. I want to share two scriptures with you right off the top that make this argument. 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, the Apostle Paul says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scripture is inspired or authored by God. And that, uh, that means to be inspired is, is to say that it is God-breathed. Some of your translations would even say that, that it was from him to people that he chose to deliver it to all people. And uh, those messengers were often prophets. They were apostles. They were people that God specifically used but they didn't deliver a message on their own. It came first from God. And that is core to what we believe. If you don't accept that, then I don't know what in the Bible we would accept as being true. If we can pick and choose what we want to be from God and pick and choose uh, the parts that are from people, I don't know that we're left with anything with any certainty. Take a look at Thomas Jefferson's Bible if you ever get a chance, and uh, it's a lot shorter than ours. And the reason is he tore out pages of miracles and things he didn't understand or didn't want to understand and was left with really a benign book of, of good things to, to tell people and good principles to live by. But you can't pick and choose and come up with a book that you call God's Word. It's all inspired by him. 2 Corinthians 2 talks, uh, Paul continues talking. He says, for what person knows a man's thought except the spirit of the man uh, which is in him? And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the spirit. And he's saying that, we wouldn't know God unless we knew God's words, unless he had communicated to us. Another important scripture in this understanding is 2 Peter 1.21. It says, no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke by God. And again, inspiration is the process of the spiritual man being moved to write what God had put on their hearts. 
This is so foundational to what we need to believe as, believe as Christians. Without inspiration, without divine inspiration from God to us, we would know very little about him. We uh, may be able to discern some things about him, but we wouldn't know fully that it was truthful, and we wouldn't also uh, be able to speak accurately of him. So the burden for God to reveal himself is on him, not us. We can't create him. As Christians, we must believe that both the writers and the writings were inspired by God and that God put on their hearts uh, of the authors all that they would write down and exactly uh, what we need to know God, exactly what we need to know to please him. But without having that faith, that confidence, that trust, we're left with a lot of uncertainty. There are discussions I think people have, whether it's the inspired, the inspiration is with the original text or with, uh, with the versions that followed, and some are much more accurate than others. But at the very least, we have to believe that we have exactly what God wants to, us to know in the inspired autographs. So consider this illustration. I don't know if any of you ever had uh, ant farms. We tried it for like two days, and they all baked inside our little uh, aquarium. But, uh, uh, but if you cared a lot about an ant farm and the ants that were in them and you needed to get into their farm somehow to, uh, uh, to save them because you cared about them, uh, it would be entirely required that you do all the work. They could not come to you, nor could they understand you. And even though we have more in common with ants than we do with God, because he's greater than we are uh, in our greatness to the ants, the burden would be on us to enter their world to save them. And that's exactly what was required of God for us to know anything about him, that it was required that he came into our world to reveal himself to us. And yes, it was his world that he had created, but apart from him, we wouldn't know much. We don't have the luxury of walking in the garden with Adam and listening to he and God talk like Adam had. And we don't have the, uh, the opportunity as uh, the prophets did to hear God or as Moses did to see the train of God. We have to trust that God revealed to them exactly what he wanted us to know. So the what's of the scripture are important only to the degree that the why is. And why the why is important, so important that we have to follow it exactly in order to get where God wants us to be. And that means something very important that our information about God should always flow from this book to our hearts, not through the middlemen of people who have written books about God. And that's, that's a, a tricky thing because there are, off, all, there are awesome writers that tell us things that we wouldn't understand nearly as clearly, but we have to measure their words by this word. And we have to, in the end, judge them by what 
we read and hear. They are not our go-between. They are merely brothers and sisters that are walking alongside us trying to understand what we wouldn't otherwise know. In other words, the writings of Luther and Campbell and Stone and Wesley and Calvin are only true to the extent that they line up with this book. It's not this book that we measure by their writings. It's their writings that we weigh by this book. Or to say it another way, we don't look to the Bible to support what other people say. Just the opposite. We judge them by what this book says. And where there are differences, we regard that as a difference in, in their teaching, as an error, as a misunderstanding. And that is perhaps why the church does so much of its greatest work in teaching. There are a lot of important things that the church does other than teaching. And not only important things, but essential things and even commanded things. And they're all important, but only so much as they relate to right doctrine. Preaching is an essential part of the church, the church's work. And the only preacher in the church is not the one who stands here. You are all preachers. You are all speaking the word of God when you're speaking truth. And you're all speaking the word of God when you're living the truth. And you're as capable and even obligated to speak to me as I am to you. But only is that valuable when right doctrine is being spoken. Worship is commanded in Scripture, and it's something that God gave us as a requirement for us to do to Him long before we thought it'd be good if we sang to God. I mean, do we really think that we're that good of singers that He would want to hear from us unless it's because we are His children and we are obeying Him and He sees in us the same thing that we see in our children when in their less than perfect attempts, we see their heart coming forth. But sing about wrong doctrine, and it doesn't have the same effect. If the words are not scriptural, if the words are not true, if they're not right doctrine, it may be more of an abomination to his ears than it is a pleasure to his ears. Fellowship is important. Being the church, sharing in the life, it's often, uh, often more desired than even the, the right teaching. But fellowship can go wrong, too, if it doesn't line up with Scripture. Youth groups and youth pro children's programs are important, but only if they're pointing people to Christ. I was talking to my dad this week about uh, a guy that he used to work with who had a, a raunchy vocabulary and uh, this guy was talking about needing to get home the weekend because he was on duty to teach Sunday school. And my dad said, you know what, what do you teach at, at your church? He said, well, he said, we usually just go through some children's books, and they're not even biblical books, just children's books. And that's not very important in the long run. And it reflected in the priority of this man's life that he lived in Christ. So all the things that we do are only important so much as they teach right doctrine. And uh, 
I think two things have happened, and, and they're, they're probably both going to reveal the obvious that I'm old. But uh, as we have, as I have gotten older, uh, we're in church far less than we used to be. Uh, some of you are old enough to remember being in church for Sunday school or Bible school, for being in church for uh, the worship time, and these are kind of old days for setting with kids again. Uh, we would come back for Sunday night and Wednesday night often, and revivals, 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 sometimes two weeks long that we would have revivals. And that may be excessive, but we're hardly in church at all now. And that's noticeable in, in several ways, the fact that probably culture has more of an impact on us outside of church than it does inside, and we are hearing the word of God far less than we used to, and we are coming up with conclusions that look less like God than, uh, and more like our culture. Another challenge with that, though, as, uh, as I've talked to Bible college t uh, presidents and professors, the knowledge of freshmen coming into college today is far less than it's ever been. And I think it's because people are not in a place to hear teaching like they used to be. And uh, what's happened is other things have entered into our lives. We are busier. I don't think there's anything, any doubt about that. We have more hobbies, more activities, more competition for uh, church on weekends, Wednesday nights. And some of those things are, are probably not worth keeping in order to be... Uh, uh, the trade-off that we're given up for being in, in God's house, hearing God's word. But the other thing that's happened is that more often in the past, our, more often now than in the past, our theology comes from places other than the Bible. Speakers and teachers on TV or the internet, books, music, our feelings, social pressures, the entertainment world, we've all, we become people whose religious thoughts reflect more of those things than this. And because of that, we have come to a lot of different conclusions uh, that aren't, aren't godly. And so we have to get back to teaching a generation to think rightly about God because there's nothing more important to think right about. In our day, pragmatism rules. And it's a pragmatism that doesn't have accountability. Uh, sin has become debatable and often it's become acceptable, but not for the victims. It's never acceptable for the victims, but they're not the ones making the decisions about whether to sin or not. We were warned that this day would come, and not by just Christian writers, but by people who had a glimpse of what morality or the absence of morality would end, end with. Kierkegaard wrote about it 175 years ago in a book called The Present Age. Maybe you read that in college. Spangler wrote about it 95 years ago in a book called The Decline of the West. G.K. Chesterton wrote about it 90 years ago when he said something profound, that the next great heresy is simply going to be an attack on morality 
and especially sexual morality and the madness of tomorrow will not come from Moscow, which was the fear in his day, but from Manhattan. Aldous Huxley wrote about it 85 years ago in a book called The Brave New World. Lewis, C.S. Lewis wrote about it 75 years ago in a book called The Abolition of Man. David Reisman wrote about it 70 years ago in a book called The Lonely Crowd. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn, 43 years ago in an address that he gave to Harvard graduates when he talked about uh, the fact that anything will be acceptable in the future to people who do not connect their image with God's image. Charles Colson wrote about in the Dark Age. Mother Teresa spoke about it when she said, when a mother can kill her baby, what's left of a civilization to save? Even Josh McDowell, a man that some of you would know from, uh, from your time in college or since, he said, I used to speak on college campuses and people would say, prove that. Not any longer. Now they say, how dare you judge me? As if the judging is not connected to truth whatsoever. And he even said that John 3.16 had been replaced as the most recognizable verse by uh, Matthew 7.1, judge not lest you be judged. The voices have been many who helped us to understand where we would get. One in particular, a Christian writer, A.W. Tozer, said something profound that when, when what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And he said also that history will prove that no civilization has ever risen above its concept of God. So what happens if that concept changes? What happens if we uh, divorce ourselves from the truth of Scripture? What happens if all of a sudden we don't believe the many things that the Bible tells us? Things such as creation and the created order, and most importantly, the creator. What happens if we don't understand humanity and the origins of humanity and and the fact that we were created male and female, what happens if we don't understand the nature of sin and the consequences of sin? Or if we don't rightly understand who God is or why he destroyed the earth the first time or how through the Jewish people he created uh, not only a unique people but a people that the world could look at and see what would happen if he too was their God and they too were his people. Without the law, we wouldn't truly understand what God wants from us. And without the Bible, we wouldn't understand heaven, and we certainly wouldn't understand hell. What happens when that evaporates from our knowledge? Well, we can come and sing, and you sing well, the worship team performs well, plays well, they don't perform unless it's to God. But we can do a lot of good things, but they're not meaningful unless they line up with the truth of Scripture. It's interesting that even believing people in the Scripture had differences. 
people that had followed Jesus, walked with him for three years, listened to everything he taught, obeyed what he commanded, wrestled with moments that they were more obedient than other moments. Even they had disagreements that had to be worked out. At Pentecost, you'll remember uh, all are gathered in one place. They're there to celebrate the Pentecost, and they experienced the arrival of the Holy Spirit, but an accusation was there as to who the people were speaking in tongues and what they were up to, and they were accused of all things of drinking too much. And the apostle Peter took them back to the prophet Joel, telling them what was predicted, and then he gave them a clear explanation of who Jesus was from David's prediction of the resurrection. And the scriptures settled that disagreement. In Acts 15, some were teaching that all, all observers of Christ, all of the followers of Christ, had to be circumcised to be saved. And in other words, the law is still in effect. And Paul and Barnabas will travel to Jerusalem to give a report to the elders and the uh, apostles about the matter to explain how Gentiles had been converted. And after discussion, the apostle Peter shares how God made the choice long ago that Gentiles might hear and believe the gospel, making no distinction between the two and, bind, and not binding the Gentiles to the yoke of the Jewish people, he said. But again, it was looking back that settled the present. There were arguments in Romans 14 over holy days and holy food, and it was, there was a disagreement regarding what believers would eat when they would worship, and from <clears throat> the Apostle Paul will come the reminder, don't look down on people who eat what you don't feel like you can because of your conscience, and, and they too should not look down upon you. Everyone has to, to come to that conclusion uh, alone, but we don't judge our brother on, those, on that basis. Same thing with regarding the Sabbath observances and the requirements. God's the one who judges. And there were many disagreements. You would think people that all believe in the same book would always come to the same conclusion, but there were many disagreements. Some were cultural, some were theological, some were because of personalities in the church, and that is always uh, a risk when you have personalities in the church. Some, were, some of the differences were because people were at different places in their faith. Some had been following longer than others. Some were new to the faith, but, but maybe more vocal than they should have been. And some of those practices that caused disagreements were because there were people in the church that had strong convictions and there were people who didn't feel as strongly. Some of the differences had to do with Jewish and Gentile believers. And in Galatians 2, Paul will argue that God does not judge the outside, but rather the inside. And that those accepting Christ as either Gentile or Jewish were going to have to accept each other as brother and sister. The apostle even had to confront Peter's own immaturity because he took a step back in his understanding of culture and he would not eat with Gentile believers. 
And an apostle of the Lord has to rebuke, be rebuked by another one for his wrong thinking about something important to the heart of God. Paul takes him back to Abraham, though, and to the fact that Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith to the conclusion that he will say, you are all God's sons through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the same promise. And that meant something important as Peter heard it. These are your brothers. Sit down and eat with your brothers and sisters. They don't have to be chosen by you for you to recognize who their parents are, who their father is. The solution to all the problems was always the same, though. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's listen to what God said in the Old Testament. Let's listen to what Christ preached. And combined with that, let's speak the truth. Let's hear the truth. Look for the truth. But let's also have the heart of a God who loves all people and the Christ who died for all people. I had an education class years ago where a lady came to speak about... Um, multicultural issues. And um, I, I wish you were on the college campus to see uh, the fact that the world is there. We have a hundred nations of people on campus. And uh, they come from all over, but they come from a lot of places that I don't know much about. And, uh, and I wouldn't if I didn't know these people. Yes, I could read, but I'm, I guess I'm too lazy to do that. There's no other excuse. But people have changed what I think about the countries that they come from. And this lady, uh, this teacher years ago, had come to speak about multicultural uh, education, multicultural issues. She was uh, reading from a book, she was going through the fact that we need to accept all people from all places and even accept what they believe in their value systems and we can't speak of anyone as wrong or right. We can only hear them and then there was a long pause. And she shut her book and she said, I can't say this anymore. And then she said the most profound thing that I think... Uh, uh, I heard from any teacher on campus. She said, until we come to the conclusion that we have one father, we will never see each other as one humanity. And I still believe that's true. Not only will we never see one humanity, but without one father, I don't know that there's any reason to get along. If there is no God, if we are living by uh, survival of the fittest, as Darwin uh, argued, then let's, let's survive however we want to and however we can, whatever it takes. But if there's one God and we are one people, then we have to do it in a way that honors him and our brothers and sisters that believe in him 
and even the image bearers of him that live around us that don't live for him. The problem with wrong doctrine is that it always distorts the nature of God. And that will always lead to a distortion in our understanding of who God is. And that will always lead to a distortion or a wrongful application of what God wants from us, the ways of God. We have to strive to get our theology right. And we will have differences. For a lot of reasons, we'll have differences. But it makes a difference whether we see our differences through his eyes as opposed to ours. For we are his children, and we are therefore brothers and sisters, and our conclusions have to both honor him and each other. How important is right knowledge? Listen to what the prophet Hosea said. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing and lying and murder and stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beast of the field, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea are swept away. But let no one bring a charge, let no one accuse another, for your people are like those who bring charges against priests. You stumble day and night, and the prophets stumble with you. So I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you as my priest. Because you have ignored the law of your God, I will also ignore your children. It matters what we believe. It matters what conclusions we come to. It matters how we live in light of what the Bible teaches. All scripture is inspired. The part that's easy to follow is inspired. The part that's hard to follow is inspired. The parts we like are inspired. The parts that we don't like are inspired. There is no difference. And we have to believe it all and follow it all in order to help people rightly see the God of all. Would you pray with me? Father, we are humbled to be people that know more about you than we do. Uh, even among the good people here today, Father, uh, we would not be anything without you, and we would struggle without you. And even with the knowledge of you, Father, uh, we still fight uh, the flesh to obey. But I pray that while needing grace to uh, bridge that gap between what we must do and what we are not doing, that you would convict us of the truth of your word, and that our passion uh, for the days of our lives ahead will be uh, to simply follow you, to search for that truth and to live it out. 
Father, I praise you for calling us to a, a place to worship together. And may this always be a, a light, a, a beacon, Father, that, that shines in this world uh, for your glory and for your truth. In Christ we pray. Amen.